Fame and popularity are fickle things. Ask any superstar athlete who may be heralded a hero one week and cast as a villain the next. The same is true, perhaps more so, for world leaders. No matter how big their fan base may be, a string of questionable decisions, bad judgment, or outright failures can quickly dissolve all of that support. So when the hopes of millions of colonists are resting on your shoulders, not to mention the futures of millions more unborn citizens, failure will almost certainly derail your cause. But failure has its uses. No leader has ever had a smooth path to leadership. All have been shaped by failure in some way, often before and even during their career. Today's subject was no stranger to failure. It defined him in his early career, confounded him in the first stages of the revolution, and nearly doomed him by the time the war was in full swing. But without these failures, the nation's unanimous choice to fulfill the first office of the presidency never would have emerged. That man's name, of course, is George Washington. And this is Rebellion. Following the opening shots at the battles of Lexington and Concord, the British took control of Boston. In response, Massachusetts militias laid a siege around the city, blocking all roads in and out. It was an attempt to starve the British out of the city, preventing them from expanding their presence outside of Boston. In June, when George Washington, the inaugural commander-in-chief of the newly formed Continental Army, was en route to Boston to take control of military strategy, a deadly skirmish took place on two now-famous hills, Bunker Hill and Breed's Hill. Roughly 1,500 troops died in total, nearly half of the assembled forces. Americans stationed on the high ground bravely fought off the first two attacks, but were forced to retreat after running out of ammunition in the third charge. Despite the retreat, the British had endured so many casualties, twice as many as the rebels, that many declared it an American victory. Spirits were high throughout the colonies, but when Washington arrived, he realized how dire the situation really was. The troops stationed in Boston were severely low on weapons and ammunition. Immediately, it became clear that Washington's first challenge would be finding new ways to acquire gunpowder. But they were also in need of something else. In a letter to his brother Sam sent shortly after arriving in Boston, Washington described the state of the army as, quote, under very little command, 
discipline, or order. Great steps would need to be taken to reform this unruly group of Boston punks into the methodical force he needed them to be. But at that moment, Powder held higher priority. Many missions were taken up to acquire powder, like infiltrating British stores, executed most famously by Benedict Arnold and Ethan Allen. Henry Knox, one of Washington's most trusted generals, hauled the materials 300 miles from upstate New York to Boston. Despite these courageous efforts, the vast majority of gunpowder used by the Americans during the war was supplied by our future brothers-in-arms, France. There was another decision that put the colonists at a disadvantage. In Massachusetts, slaves and free black men were already serving in local militias. When Washington arrived, he wanted to place a ban on all black soldiers. Other leaders convinced him to compromise, allowing the already enlisted men to finish out their terms. After their service ended, though, no other black men were allowed to enlist. It wasn't until later that fall that Washington's hand was forced by British Governor Lord Dunmore, who declared, quote, all indented servants, Negroes, or others free that are able and willing to bear arms if joining His Majesty's troops. That proclamation enraged American colonists, including Washington. He continued to prohibit black soldiers until so many of them joined the enemy side that he was forced to lift the ban. But there was yet an even more persistent and deadlier obstacle for Washington to overcome. One he had experienced firsthand in his younger days. Smallpox. So prevalent was the outbreak of that disease, one described by Washington himself as, quote, the most dangerous enemy, that a smallpox hospital was established to deal with those infected. Washington, knowing firsthand the effects of the illness, kept it in mind constantly, knowing how difficult it would be to contain amongst a collection of thousands within a city of 15,000. In a letter to Joseph Reed, he described his misgivings, stating, quote, If we escape the smallpox in this camp and the country roundabout, it will be miraculous. In the years to come, Washington would make it mandatory for new recruits to receive the then rudimentary smallpox inoculation as soon as they enlisted. But those inoculations were not as effective as modern vaccines. To be inoculated, a doctor would create an open wound in the patient's arm, then rub live smallpox virus into the wound. The patient would usually fall sick for about a month, and a small percentage would die. The survivors, though, would be safe from the disease for the rest of their lives. Washington made a clear impact on the war effort in Boston. 
His decision to occupy Dorchester Heights, which provided clear cannon fire on the enemy from above the city, is largely what led the British to evacuate after 11 months of siege warfare. So indelible was the impression Washington left as the new leader of the colonists that he was widely praised in British newspapers after his arrival, often for his resolute demeanor, leadership qualities, and integrity. Once the British left Boston, Washington led the Continental Army to New York City, and more and more Americans enlisted as enthusiasm toward the war spiked. But that enthusiasm would soon plummet after the British flexed their full military muscle in the summer of 1776. It was in March of that year that Washington formed a lifeguard, a group of elite soldiers tasked with protecting the commander-in-chief at all costs. But there would be some threats even closer to home. One of the members of that group was a man named Thomas Hickey, who had, like the general himself, served for the British in the French and Indian War, but joined the colonists during the Revolution. This lifeguard would prove to be a fragile, yet no less vital, enterprise. New York City had a healthy share of loyalists. The streets were never teeming with the spirit of the Revolution the way they were in Boston though the city itself was strategically important as one of the best waterways in the colonies, not to mention providing a path up the Hudson River all the way to Canada, Washington and his troops were heading into a hornet's nest. In a city so split between allegiances, it was hard to place trust in anyone. From that point on, New York became a center for espionage. And in that summer of 1776, the city would see multiple hangings of accused spies. One of those spies, as fans of this show will remember, was Nathan Hale, sent by George Washington to gather intel on the British. But there was another man, some months earlier, who was sent to the gallows. A double agent for the British named Thomas Hickey, sergeant in George Washington's lifeguard. Hickey was arrested and officially charged with counterfeiting, which during the war was an effective strategy used by the British to drive down the value of colonial currency. On June 28, 1776 though, Hickey was brought out in front of 20,000 onlookers, which is roughly the entire population of New York at the time, and hanged. Seems a little harsh for a counterfeiting charge, doesn't it? That's because a popular theory posits that his real crime was hatching a conspiracy to kidnap George Washington and deliver him to the British across enemy lines. Washington effectively made an example out of Hickey. He later wrote that he hoped the punishment would, quote, be a warning to every soldier in the army to avoid sedition, mutiny, and other crimes 
disgraceful to the character of a soldier and pernicious to his country, whose pay he receives and bread he eats. A few days later, over 30,000 British troops were bearing down on the hard scrabble American army. The horizon that day was filled with so many ships that one private described it as, quote, looking as though all London was afloat. Though it was an ill-advised decision, Washington prepared to stand and fight. On July 2nd, 1776, the same day that Congress voted to declare independence, Washington gathered his troops. The fate of unborn millions will now depend, Washington told them, on the courage and conduct of this army. Our cruel and unrelenting enemy leaves us no choice but a brave resistance, or the most abject submission. This is all we can expect. We have therefore to resolve to conquer or die. When the British finally landed, though, a waiting game commenced. Washington dug in as General Howe of the British sat anchored in New York Harbor. On July 8th, the Declaration of Independence arrived. Washington ordered it to be read aloud that evening. After the troops heard Thomas Jefferson's immortal words, they went nuts. They stormed down to the Bowling Green in Lower Manhattan, where soldiers took saws to the tops of the spokes of the wrought iron fence surrounding the park, sawing the British crowns from atop each one. The scratch marks from those saws are still visible today if you visit the park. Next, they tore down and beheaded the King George III statue on the green. And so the story goes, used the two-ton lead statue to make 42,000 musket balls. One might assume that Washington was delighted by the enthusiastic behavior of his soldiers. Instead, ever the disciplined gentleman, he was appalled at the disorderly display. Just four days later, on July 12th, Five British ships sailed in and bombarded New York for two straight hours, while the bulk of American troops stood frozen in response. Despite a terrifying shelling that sent soldiers and citizens panicking, all-out war was stalled. It wasn't until late August when the fighting began, but it would prove swift and devastating. Before the British officially began their attack, Washington told his troops he would shoot and kill any man who fled from battle. So on August 27th, the British made their move, sailing from Staten Island to Brooklyn and absolutely decimating Washington's army, killing 20% of their forces. Two nights later, after a resounding victory, the British dug in for a siege, expecting Washington to surrender. Instead, in the middle of the night, Washington successfully evacuated his entire army of 9,000 men across the river to Manhattan. 
two weeks later, on September 15th, the British continued their pursuit, landing at Kipps Bay and sending Washington's troops into a desperate flight yet again. The general, trying to restore order during the chaos, exposed himself to the British front lines. With bullets whistling toward him, he failed to organize any semblance of a defense. His forces barely escaped and left him questioning the merits of his soldiers, calling their actions, quote, shameful and scandalous. The next week, with young Nathan Hale spying across enemy lines, a mysterious fire broke out that destroyed two-thirds of Manhattan. Though it was never confirmed, evidence suggests that Washington ordered the city to be burned, an idea he had discussed with his generals and members of Congress. The following day, Nathan Hale was caught and hanged. So Washington, completely outplayed and outgunned, suffered an embarrassment at the hands of the British. Luckily for him, General Howe decided to pull back rather than continue his full pursuit, a decision that is questioned to this day. By November, the entire Continental Army had evacuated New York and headed to New Jersey. Due to his miscalculations, bad decisions, and continual defeats, his army began shrinking during the journey as British troops pursued them. The one-year enlistments many of the troops signed were beginning to expire, and rather than sign back on during a brutal winter, many chose desertion instead. Aside from low morale and desertions, the winter of 76 decimated the Continental Army another way, non-combat deaths. Throughout the entire war, more soldiers by far died from disease, malnutrition, starvation, or exposure than in every battle combined. That winter, the revolutionary cause that had begun with so much hope and passion was seriously fizzling out. On the horizon lay death, despair, and certain defeat. However, that all changed in December, when Washington and his troops reached the Delaware River outside of Trenton, New Jersey. After weeks of running from the British, the Americans needed a victory, no matter how small. After learning that a group of Hessians, German mercenaries hired by the British, were stationed in Trenton, Washington chose to sail across the half-frozen river to launch a surprise attack and retake the city. Washington leading his troops through the ice flows of the Delaware River continues to be one of the most enduring images of the war. Though the victory wasn't very strategically significant, it was a much-needed morale booster that reignited Americans' passion for the cause. When the British caught up to the American troops, General Washington experienced one of his closest brushes with death. While trying to rally his men who, in the chaos, didn't realize they actually had the upper hand on the enemy, Washington rode his horse right down the middle of the firing lines, 
after the British let off a volley of musket fire, Washington became engulfed in smoke, with the onlooking soldiers sure he was a dead man. However, when the smoke cleared, Washington emerged unscathed, ordering his men forward. These moments would later become legendary, but at the time, they quickly lost their luster. When 1777 rolled around, Washington stumbled into a string of defeats, adding credence to suggestions that he was an incompetent general. The British, meanwhile, were hatching a plan to sever the colonies. From Canada, British forces led by General John Burgoyne began sailing south down the Hudson River. General Howe could have left New York to meet Burgoyne, wrest control of the river, and cut off New York and New England from the rest of the colonies. Instead, Howe decided to enter Philadelphia, where he took control of what was then the American capital, sending the Congress fleeing. That summer, Washington tried to engage the British in battles at Brandywine and Germantown. Both ended in defeat. Then, in September, General Horatio Gates, and none other than Benedict Arnold, led the American troops to a momentous victory in the Battle of Saratoga. That victory also convinced the French to throw more support behind the Americans, eventually tipping the scales in the colonists' favor. It was great for the country, but further isolated Washington. In two years of warfare, he had led a narrow win in Boston, a resounding, crushing, and humiliating defeat in New York, followed by months of retreating, two lost battles, and only one symbolic victory in Trenton. A movement began to replace Washington with Horatio Gates. Known as the Conway Cabal, after one of the officers involved, the group exchanged letters with blistering criticisms of Washington, calling him, quote, a weak general. It seemed to reveal a conspiracy within the army, as Horatio Gates was positioning himself to replace Washington, while others were spreading discord and doubt about the commander-in-chief. The plan backfired, though, when the letters were intercepted. Copies were sent to Washington and to Congress. Their plan was exposed, and Horatio Gates issued an apology to Washington, but their relationship never recovered. With losses and desertions continuing, infighting and conspiracies cropping up like weeds, it would seem the army had hit rock bottom. But there was even more misery to come, as the Continental Army would set up winter camp at Valley Forge. With 11,000 soldiers staying at the camp north of Philadelphia, provisions and temperatures began to plummet. Part of what made it difficult for the Americans to secure supplies was the method by which the British systematically devalued continental currency. 
by printing and distributing counterfeit money, confidence in that currency nosedived. This led to more colonists accepting British currency since it was on more solid footing. In Valley Forge, more and more soldiers deserted camp to escape the ragged conditions. Over and over again, Washington wrote to Congress pleading for assistance. One visitor described the site of that camp as a skeleton army. Aside from desertions, soldiers were exposed to numerous diseases, including pneumonia, smallpox, and typhoid, among others. Thousands lost their lives from those diseases, from freezing cold conditions, from malnutrition, exposure, and starvation. By the spring of 1778, Washington realized they were in a war of attrition. The Continental Army was suffering more so from lack of provisions than from military defeats. It seemed a foregone conclusion that the British, despite their defeat in Saratoga, would either stomp out the American forces on the battlefield or starve them into surrender. In the following months, Washington would begin to revise his normally aggressive military tactics. Somehow, the commander-in-chief would have to find a way to tip the scales. But how? What changed between Valley Forge and the eventual victory at Yorktown? Who did Washington place his trust in to swing the momentum? And who would he rely on for assistance, aid, and strategic advice? To find out, tune in next time to part four of George Washington and Rebellion. Rebellion was produced by me, Dustin Connors. If you want to help support the show, one of the best and easiest things you can do is give it a rating on iTunes or even write a review. If we receive more ratings, we can welcome in new listeners. For more on this and other great stories, visit rebellionpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.